Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us for the first message in the series, Broken. In this series, we'll be looking at things in our lives that need to be rebuilt, marriages, homes, finances, health. Lead Pastor David Fossil gives us four principles today that we can use in rebuilding our lives and will help us to get our lives in order. Join us today as Pastor Dave challenges us to act on what's in disrepair in our lives as we claim the promises of God. It is good to have you here, Bay Hills. Grab your Bibles and turn to page 342, Nehemiah chapter 1, 342, Nehemiah chapter 1. Grab the study guide that's in your program. We are starting a brand new series today, as you see on the screen, called Broken. Now, we are going to start with a, uh, a competition between services. You are the last service. We are starting with a family feud question that is based upon kind of this series. This actually came from family feud. Here's the question for third service. Name a term or a phrase that starts with the word broken. Name a term or a phrase that starts with the word broken. Now, wait one second. 100 people survey. Top five answers on my little three, three by five card. First service got three out of five. Second service got four out of five. This is your chance, third service, to come out of the shadows and prove yourself as the best service at Bay Hills. Okay, someone in this section right here. A broken arrow is the number two answer. That is correct. Someone from this section right here. Were you here for service, sir? Broken wing is the fourth answer. That is correct. Someone right here. Broken heart is the number one answer. And no strikes so far. The next answer has to come from the bleachers. You got 10 seconds bleacher. 10 seconds bleacher. What, what is it? Broken apart. Broken apart is incorrect. <laughs> one strike. Okay, someone in the back over here. Someone in the back, put your hand up. Someone in the back, right there. Broken promise is the number fifth one. Okay, you are missing one and only one for the championship. You only have one strike, okay? Put your hand up. How about, okay, now, you have to be under the age of 20 for this next person. Anyone under the age of 20? Guess the answer, come on. Under the age of 20? Under the age of 20? Right there, sir. Broken down is incorrect again from the bleachers. <laughs> you guys got one, you guys got one more chance to be the champion. You guys have broken heart. You said broken arrow, broken promise, broken down, which was incorrect, broken wing. You're missing one. You, do you want to take the challenge to be the champion or tied with second service? Okay, here it is. Broken what? Broken window is Incorrect. I am so sorry you tied with second service. The it's not broke. Excuse me. The game's over with, sir. It's done. Now you got all the answers. Number three was broken leg or broken arm. I am so sorry. Okay, can we get back to the scriptures, please? Okay, we are talking about a series about broken things, broken marriages. Broken homes, broken financial life, broken health. We're going to talk about things in our life that needs to be that need to be rebuilt. 
And we're going to base that in looking at the book of Nehemiah. The first seven chapters have some incredibly interesting things to talk about. Now, fascinating, I, I planned this series a couple months ago, not knowing what was going to be happening in the life of the church right now. Um, the issue in the book of Nehemiah is the exact same issue we are dealing with right now as a church. The issue in Nehemiah is they have a facility issue and a facility problem. The problem in Nehemiah is they have broken walls. So for the whole first seven chapters, all they're trying to do is fix and repair their facility issue. So we're going to be talking over the next couple of weeks about principles that are going to apply to what we're talking about. Let's jump right into Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Introduce the story and what's going on. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Many Bible experts and scholars think that what we have in the book of Nehemiah is literally his, his journal. I don't know how many of you journal, but journal's not, not something you normally share with other people. We've got Nehemiah's journal, so it's very personal. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I was in the citadel of Susa. Susa is modern-day Iran or Iraq area. So that's where we are in this part of the world. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah. One of my ethnic brothers come from Judah uh, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and about Jerusalem. Let me give you some historical context to understand what is happening here. You've got kings like King Saul, King Solomon, King David, that make the Jewish people into a great nation. Israel as a nation is powerful. They are respected. Um, but then they start to walk away from the Lord. They start to disobey the Lord. So God says, you guys remember the deal we had? If you obey me, I bless you. If you disobey me, I take my blessing away from you. So in fact, that's what happens. So the Assyrian nation comes in, swoops in, and invades them. Uh, then the Babylonian nation comes in, swoops in, and invades them. And pretty much decimates the country and takes many of the Jews back to Babylon as slaves. It's what's known as the great Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah is a descendant of one of those Jews that was taken away. He's never even been in his homeland. But he is now finds himself in Susa. He actually has a pretty prominent job. At the end of chapter 1, it tells us he's the cupbearer. The cupbearer was a combination butler bodyguard and advisor to the king. His main responsibility, cool job, but very dangerous, main responsibility was to taste all the wine and the food served to the drink to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Because that's how you kind of killed someone in those days, a political person. So you, you great food, but kind of a high-risk job, right? So there he finds himself, and some ethnic Jews, as he is, come back from Jerusalem. I don't know if they're on business trip or vacation. I don't know what's going on. Right? But they come back. He wants to know how the, how, how the homeland's doing. So he asks a question innocently that introduces the most significant problem that we are now going to talk about from a brokenness standpoint in the rest of the chapter. Verse 3, here's what we read. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. In other words, we've got a problem and they're discouraged. The wall of Jerusalem is broken. The gates have been burned with fire. I'm going to try and give you four principles this morning. If there's anything in your life that is broken and needs to be repaired, the first steps you take, the first actual principle comes from this verse right here. If you're jotting down notes, here's what I want you to write down. You need to see the need. You need to look around you and have the courage 
to honestly admit what is going on in your life. You have to have the ability to state the truth about what is in disrepair and what is broken. Now, part of the issue that we have is that we live in a culture that, for example, after service, if someone comes up to you and says, hey, how's it going? Your natural response is going to go, doing good. Even if that's not true, there's something inside of us that instinctively says, this is not the place to kind of share everything that's going on if my life's falling apart. So I understand that, but then we internalize that, we take that with us, and we actually start to believe that. We start to believe that everything's all right, even though there are things in our lives that are broken and in disrepair. The problem is that some of us are living in what I'm going to call a dream world. We've got blinders on, and we don't see the problems and issues that are around us. Other people take the complete opposite extreme. Do you know people, they're not living in a dream world. They're living in a neurotic negative world where everything is a problem. Have you ever met people like this? Everything is a problem in my life. Well, that's not really true. Um, and if you start thinking and believing that, then nothing ever filters to the top, floats to the top as the, the main priority. So you got some people living in a dream world, you got, you got some people living in a, in a negative world, and then you got some people living in a distorted world. I can't tell you how many times that I'm kind of just in casual conversations with people and they'll say something like that. Yeah, that's just how teenagers are. Or they'll say this. Yeah, that's, that's just how it is in marriage. You know how it is. And I want to shake them and go, no, it's not. It's not like that. Now, that may be what we are told on TV, on the sitcoms to get us to laugh, but that is not what the Bible says about marriage. And our standard, and we have distorted our standard, and some of us actually believe that living with a level of dysfunction in our life is acceptable. Because everybody's got that. You know, no, wait a minute. That, that's what sin brought into the world. But you see, we have a solution that is told his name is Jesus Christ and can remove that dysfunction and make us whole again. So the first step, very simply, is just, just be honest with yourself. You know, are there any sins that I have to deal with? Are there any dysfunctions in my life? Are there any things that I need to start doing that I'm not doing? How, how am I doing financially? How am I doing spiritually? How am I doing relationally? Think this through. Think through a grid on your life and identify. Is there any area in disrepair? Is there any, any walls that are broken down? Just be honest about it. Some of you may have heard the story. ABC reported it last month, January the 21st, about a 32-year-old guy by the name of Dante Altuyo. Dante Altuyo was working in his garage in Chicago. And uh, apparently, I don't know what he was um, putting up sheetrock and building shelves. And he's got, he had his, his nail gun and he had all his tools and he's doing his thing. And something happened. The she, some re-sheetrock fell or the shelves fell and he got all banged up and his family came running out. You know, he was, a, he was a little bit bloody and they fixed him up and everything. He decided he wanted to keep working. So he worked the rest of Saturday. Then he worked the rest of Sunday. He went to work his employment on Monday. Later on that evening, his family was a little concerned because he's been severe nausea and really bad headaches, like migraine headaches. And they're like, you know, we should probably take you in. And so they took him in and, uh, you know, met with the doctor at the emergency room. And they took an x-ray. I kid you not, I'm going to show you his actual x-ray. What you see in there is a three and a half inch nail. <laughs> it's not funny. But, you know, the, the problem with, apparently one of the nails, remember I told you the nail gun? He, he misfired when everything started falling on him. A couple nails went back into the sheetrock. One of them went right up through here, his ear and lodged in his head. I was reading the article like, this can't be true. 
And I, I'm, there's something about the brain and the nerve cells and not feeling certain things. I couldn't understand it. But, but I, as I read this, I thought about this section right here. I thought, you know, some of us, um, we, are, we, we are walking around in life with broken walls in our lives, with burnt gates, with nails in our head. There are issues in our marriage. There are issues financially. There are issues relationally. There are issues, you know, uh, spiritually. And, and we're just kind of going through life like no big deal. And I just want to, I want to encourage you, have the courage to admit the truth. Because you can't fix it until you admit, I've, I've got an issue here, okay? I've got an issue. Which leads to the second step you see in verse 4. Not only does Nehemiah see the need, but he begins to feel the need. Verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned. That's a pretty heavy word. That's like what happens when someone dies. I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Let me ask you a question. What breaks your heart? What makes you cry? What makes you sob? What makes you angry? Really ticks you off. What do you have a burden for? You know what's interesting and fascinating about these verses, the first three, four verses of Nehemiah, is there's no new information here. Here's what I mean. What happened in Jerusalem, the walls being torn down and the gates being burned, happened 140 years before Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah already knew what had happened to Jerusalem. So why verse 4? Why? Why does he weep? Why does he fall apart if he already knows this? This is the equivalent of me coming to you this morning and saying, I've got some really bad news. I am so sorry to inform you that, that President Lincoln has been shot. You would be like, uh, yeah, we heard that. Me saying that, does that bring a tear to your eye? Does that bother you in any way? No! We weren't alive when that happened. Yeah, we've heard that in high school. We read about it. We've seen movies about it. Kind of no big deal. So why verse 4? The more you read about Nehemiah and the more you study what commentators are saying, they're saying, you know, here's what's happening in verse 4. It's not that there's new information for Nehemiah. It's that there's a new perspective. For the first time, Nehemiah begins to see life from God's perspective, not just his perspective. You see, the walls broken down and the gates burned are not just a security issue. Though that is an issue. In those days, all cities and towns were built around a, gate, a wall with gates. They didn't have, you know, armies and security systems and police force like we have today. You could have a group of vandals or a small army sweep in into a town, vandalize it, take whatever they want. But not if you were around the walls and a gate. If you saw them coming, you close the gates and you're safe. But no gate, no walls, you're in deep trouble. But it's more than a security problem. It's more than an ethnic pride problem. They were embarrassed. They really were. They were in disgrace, the verse says. They felt horrible about themselves as a people. Because, I mean, look at our capital. I mean, it's awful. Now, who wants to go there to vacation? Nobody. It's more than a security issue. It's more than a pride issue. Nehemiah finally realized it's a spiritual issue at the core. You go, how do you get that? You know what? The whole story of this book is the story of a God that created you and loved you and wants to have a relationship with you. So he came up with a plan. And he's like, you know, here's my plan. 
I'm going to work through this small group of people called the Jews in the nation of Israel. And I'm going to have the city of Jerusalem. They're going to be a light to the world to share the story of the one true God. But in Nehemiah chapter 1, they are not a light to the world. They are an international joke. It's not just about the city. It's about the story that God is trying to tell through that people and through that city. And Nehemiah begins to get it. And it breaks him. Which brings us back to us. Is our heart broken for the things that break the heart of Jesus Christ? Are we burdened and bothered by the things that burden and bother our Heavenly Father? Let me get even more specific. Does it burden you? Is it way heavy on your heart that we live in one of the most spiritually bankrupt areas of the entire North America? You do know that only a pocket a little bit north of us, as in Seattle, and a little bit pocket in the East Coast, with the Bay Area, it is the most statistically, spiritually bankrupt area in the entire country. Let me say it this way. Um, Statistically, from a percentage standpoint, there are just as many Christians in communist China than there are in the Bay Area. We are doing just as good as a country that you get thrown in prison for your faith. Did you know there are more dogs in the Bay Area than Christians? That should be our new slogan. You know, every dog needs a Christian owner. I'm putting that in the marketplace. See how that goes over. But honestly, I understand. You're like, some of us, you grow up here, I don't know any different. And I'm not saying that they, I love living in the area. It's a gorgeous area. Who doesn't love living here? But, but having the burden for a people and a community that does not embrace God and does not love Jesus, does it weigh on your heart like it weighs on the heart of Jesus Christ? This is an important step. You know, what we're doing as a church, let's talk about this facility thing. Why do we want that? Why do we want our own facility? Is it so we don't have to do setup every week? Is it so we can have more comfortable chairs? Is it we can have a bigger nursery? Is it so we can have a nicer donut and coffee area? Is it so we don't have to walk a whole block and, and have our own parking lot? I mean, is that, is that what it is? Well, yes, 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 yes. But that's not the primary reason we want a new building. The primary reason we feel that we want a new building and God has given us as a vision for our, our ministry is because we want to better minister to those who are already part of this church. And we want to be more effective at reaching those who are not in this church. See, now, that would have been a good place for an amen. Let me do it one more time. The reason we want a building is to better minister to those who are already in this church and to more effectively reach who are not in the church. Every once in a while, you have to forget that you're white and you can talk back to the pastor. It's it's all right, okay? But you have to have a burden. Not you, man. You're not. Okay, anyway, let's move on. Move on. (laughs) <laughs> it's just me and Darren's. See the need, feel the need. Step number three, pray the need. Step number three, honestly, this is the thrust of this chapter and the thrust of the book of, of Nehemiah. Nehemiah has 12 prayers in seven chapters. He's a praying fool. And I mean that in a good way. When do you pray about a problem in your life? Answer before you do anything else. 
One of the very interesting little details in this book is chapter 1, verse 1, says, in the month of Kislev. Now, if it's your own Bible, not if it's one of ours from the back table, but if it's one of your own, in your margin, write November, December. That's the month of Kislev. Why is that so significant? Because the whole chapter 1, all he's doing is praying. Chapter 2, in the month of Nisan. That is the month of April. So what is he doing between November and April? What is he doing about the problem that he's heard? Praying. He's not doing any... He's praying. That's what he's doing. When do you pray about a problem in your life? Before you do anything else. And when you pray, let me just say, make sure it's specific. Make sure it's specific. I hear some Christians pray and it's so vague, I don't even know what they're asking for. You know? It's like this little girl who was praying, you know, she was kneeling down by her bed, you know, at night, and she was praying, and, and her dad was coming in to tuck her in, and he was so proud to see his little girl praying, and, but then he heard what she was doing. And all she was praying was the, the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, she, all, 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 Z, amen. He jumped in the bed, and dad was like, okay, and so he went over, and he tucked her in, and gave her a little kiss, kiss on the cheek, and said, that was so sweet to see that you were praying before getting tucked in. But can I just ask you, baby, what's, a, what, what's with just praying the alphabet? And the little girl said, you know, I, I know I'm supposed to pray, but I, I didn't really know what to pray about. I figured I would just say all the letters of the alphabet and God would put them in whatever order he wanted. Now, that's kind of cute for a seven-year-old, but unacceptable for an adult. And yet the reality is that some of our prayers are like that. We're like just kind of yada, yada, yada prayers. We're not even thinking it through, right? Pray specifically. Now, I'm going to show you specifically what Nehemiah does. There's four or five different things that happen in terms of suggestions you can have. Look at verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned, fasted, and prayed. In other words, if you're serious about prayer, you have to give it some time. It's not something you tack on to the end of your meal or at the end of your day. It has to be something you give it time. If you really want your marriage to be healed, if you really want your kids to go in the right direction, if you really want a new job, a different job, if you really want your financial house to get back in order, if you really want that neighbor, co-worker, friend, cousin that doesn't know Christ to come to Jesus, if you really want the ministries of Bay Hills to make a difference, you've got to pray. You've got to pray. And I'm not going to tire of saying this. Historically, I, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We're pretty open and honest as a staff and elder board about what we're good at at this church and what we're not good at. And what we're not good at, we have not historically been a church that was committed to prayer. And that has to change. It has to change if we want to take the next step as a ministry. He commits time to it. Small little detail, whether you do it or not, I'm just pointing it out. It says, he, he prayed, he prayed, he mourned and fasted and prayed. I've not ever been much of a fasting kind of guy. I, I don't know if it's because I've never seen it practiced that much. Maybe I just like food too much. I've just not been a fasting kind of guy. But I start thinking, you know what? Maybe if God's really in this building thing that we're in, maybe I should think about fasting a couple meals a day. You know, my days that I don't have meetings with people, Wednesdays and Thursdays. No lunch, Wednesdays and Thursdays. What's the point of fasting, by the way? It's not so you can lose weight, even though that's like an added benefit, right? The point is that what happens if you don't have lunch? What happens the rest of the afternoon? Your stomach grumbles, doesn't it? 
That's what it does. You're hungry. Your stomach, your, your body says, I'm hungry. And, and that is meant by God to be a reminder to pray about whatever issue and whatever wall is broken in your life. It's not just the building campaign. It could be something going on in your family. I'm just saying, why not, why, why not just try what the Bible says? Why not try it? Just an idea. Make time to pray. Second thing that we see, then I said, O Lord of God, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love of those who love him and obey his commands. Second step is exalt God. Do not barge into his presence. Start asking him for stuff. Start with the character of God. Start with the goodness of God. Start with the greatness of God. You know what, God? My, the walls in my life are broken down. The gates have been burned. I got a nail in my head, but you're still a good God. You are still a great God. You are an awesome God. Start with Him. Because ultimately, the goal is in life is not my comfort, it's His glory. Start by exalting Him, which leads right into the next one, surprisingly, not jumping into what we want, but 6 and 7, confession of sin. Let your ear be attentive to the eye, and your eyes open, and hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. I think that's an interesting terminology. I confess, I'm taking personal responsibility for this, for the sins we Jews and Israelites have committed. What is fascinating about this phrase is he wasn't even there when they disobeyed God. This happened several hundred years before Nehemiah. But it's a wonderful leadership principle. It's the idea that good leaders accept the problems and, 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 and take the blame for the problems and then share the praise. He is, he is personally identifying with a corporate problem. We messed up. Do you have the guts to admit that some of the issues in your life, not all, but some of the issues in your life, have nothing to do with mom and dad. They have nothing to do with circumstances in your life. They have nothing to do with what that someone did to you years ago that you're still carrying. Some of the garbage and broken walls in my life have nothing to do with all those things and everything to do with my own sin. See, you can't get to the end of the prayer unless you're willing to go through this part of the prayer. Sometimes it's my fault. Sometimes it's your fault. Don't point a finger at anyone. It's your sin, and what you're experiencing is the consequences, the results, the fruit of what you did. And you can confess it, and you can apologize for it, but there are still some consequences at times. Just admit it. Let me also say, as I've identified you individually, let's identify ourselves corporately. Not for one minute. Let's be naive enough to think that we as a church haven't committed sins against God. If John is right when he says in 1 John that every single one of us has sin. Every single one of us has sin. Every single one of you have sin. All the elders have sin. I have sin. Our student pastor Terrence has sin. Brent, our young adults pastor, has a lot of sin. I mean, we all have sin, right? If that is the case, 
We as a church have sinned. We've sinned. Let's just, just not play any games. Let's just say it. There have been times we have failed to follow God's instructions. It's fascinating that um, he further defines what sin is. Here's what we think of sin. That's when you mess up. It's when you do something bad. God doesn't want you to do it. You do it. That's sin. True, but there's another aspect of sin described in these verses. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, has committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. That's bad things you do that you ought not to do. That's one category of sin. But that's not the only category of sin. We have also not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. You see, sin is doing bad things God doesn't want you to do. But sin is also not doing good things that he wants you to do. You see, some of you are here thinking, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good with this point. No, I'm good. No, I, 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 I don't smoke weed. I don't get drunk. I don't cheat on my spouse. I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm a good employee. I'm a fairly good mom or dad. You know, I'm good. The only problem is you have a narrow perspective of sin. You are thinking of sin as just not doing the bad things. But how about all the good things God wants you to do that you know he wants you to do? How about those? If you know what he wants you to do and are choosing not to do it, it falls into this category. So here's all I'm saying. Part of your prayer and commitment is just admit it. Admit it. Now you start transitioning into getting and receiving from God. Verse 8 and 9, we read the following. I love this part, how, how Nehemiah prays to God. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses? God, you remember what you said? Remember? You said, if you are, you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. God, you remember when you said that? If we disobeyed you, you'd scatter us. And then he goes on in the rest of the verse. And then you said, but if you obey, if we obey and we come back to you, you'll bless it. Do you remember that, God, when you said, do you remember? And you're like, well, wait a minute. Does God, does God need to be reminded? Did God forget? No. God can't forget. So why the prayer? It's not because God forgot. It's because sometimes we forget. We forget. You see, the power of our prayer life sometimes is based upon, do you know and can you claim the promises of God? The more you know about his promises, the more you can claim. And the more you claim, the more God answers. It's not for God's benefit that Nehemiah is praying this. It's for his benefit he's praying it. I remember the kind of God you are and the promises that you have made to your people. This is a significant and important step. And then the, the crescendo of the prayer comes in verse 10 and 11. In verse 11, he says, Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight in re, re, revering in your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. When's the last time you prayed for success? God bless my business. God heal my marriage. God, get my kids going back on the right track. God, give me a different job or a different boss. God, give me a, uh, give me a husband, give me a wife. Specific. He's just praying for success. God, give us that building we want for a church. It's not these, you know, kind of vague, well, if it's your will, whatever. Yeah, I know that. And he knows that. But what do you want? What do you need? Be specific. 
see the need, feel the need, pray for the need. But it doesn't end there. Oh, oh no, we've just put it all in God's court so far. I'm going to get more into this next week, but let me just wrap it up for you. Point number four, at some point in time, you need to begin to meet the need. You need to meet the need. I do not have these verses up on the screen for you. Chapter 2 begins by saying this. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. So he's doing his job. He tastes the wine. No, it's not poisoned. I give it to the king, right? I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? You're not ill. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. Why? Because in those days, it was against the law to be, to be sad in the presence of the king. Oh, no, 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 no. The king just wants happy people around him. In fact, there was a law that said that if you were sad in the presence of king, he could actually have you executed. That would give you motivation to have a smile, don't you think? But he can't, he can't, he can't, the burden is just coming out of him. So verse 4, I said to the king, may the king live forever. In other words, he kisses up to him a little bit, right? Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? What is it you want? Now, if Nehemiah has been specific in his prayer, Nehemiah knows the answer to that question. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. This is what we just call a flash prayer. He doesn't go to his room to pray. He doesn't have a prayer meeting. The king asks him, what do you want? And underneath his breath, just before he answers, he says and prays, dear God, give me the right words. Give me wisdom. It's what the Bible talks about in Thessalonians about being constantly in prayer. It's these little quick flash prayers. And verse 5 is the key verse. I'm going to wrap it up with this. I answered the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in his sight. In other words, if I do a good job for you, let him send me. Send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. I want to meet the need. I want to do something about the problem. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm not going to pray about it anymore. I'm not going to talk to my Jewish friends anymore. I am offering myself to actually do something about the problem. True story. Happened about oh, good 20 years ago. There was a college choir that was singing at a large church. And uh, they, they were going to have the choir and, and the service broadcast on the local Christian radio station. And uh, so they had, because it was on the radio station that day, they had everything timed out perfectly. And so the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the person doing the announcements in the service made the announcement and, and they introduced the choir and everybody clapped and the radio show was going and, and uh, you know, they were ready to sing. And, and the director started to get ready and, and he saw that one of the tenors wasn't, wasn't quite prepared, wasn't quite ready. So, so the director waited. Waited a couple seconds, waited five seconds, waited seven seconds of complete silence in the church and on the radio. You don't want that on radio. You don't want silence on the radio. Which is why the announcer, the person who had given the announcements in service, forgetting that his microphone was still on, behind the stage said, Get on with it, you old goat. The whole church heard it. Everybody heard it on the radio station. And he was, of course, crazy embarrassed, right? But something very interesting happened from that. That week... Someone wrote a letter into the radio station. And the, the letter went something like this. 
God and I, we've kind of been, you know, we haven't been on, on the best terms. We've kind of been back and forth. We're not that close. I don't go to church anymore. That should tell you a little bit about myself. And, um, you know, I know he's wanting me to do certain things. I haven't done it. But I decided uh, a week ago Sunday to turn on the radio and see if God had anything for me. You see where this is going, right? And he said, I turned on the radio, and the first thing I heard was, get on with it, you old goat. Maybe that's exactly what some of us is saying, God is saying to some of us this morning. Just get on with it. You, you know what you got to do. Start, start working. I'll, I'll work. I'll try and rebuild that which is broken into disrepair. I'll do it. Don't, don't wait till your marriage gets on life support. That's one of the saddest things that I have as a pastor. The only time I hear of marriages that are in trouble is when they're just about ready to crumble. If you've got issues, come sooner. Find some help sooner. You do that with your car. Why not your marriage? You know, your finances, your career, your spiritual walk, or our facility. I've been telling you so far to pray and to pray and to pray, and I'm going to give you a facility update at the end of the service. But for the moment, one of the things that we're going to have to talk about at some point is, you know, we have the money to put down and to finance to buy the building. The renovations is on us. So you want to help rebuild? You might start thinking, how does God want to use me financially to make a difference in this ministry and in this community? You start thinking that. I'll help. This is not about one or two people with deep pockets covering the bill. That is not going to happen. This is about everybody saying, by the way, when he went to Jerusalem, did he rebuild it by himself? No. In fact, there's a chapter that is just name after name after name. Everybody helped. Everybody helped. Here's what I want you to do. Have the courage to do an inventory of your life and find something that may be in disrepair, is broken, and needs fixing. If you do that and you're honest, maybe you've been suppressing that for a while, it's going to bother you. That's called a burden. That's not all bad because it gives you motivation to do something about it. So see the problems. You'll start to feel it. Before you barge in and start to try and fix it, talk to God. Don't talk to your friends yet. Don't Facebook. Just talk to God first. See what he has to say to you. Try and identify, does he want me to do something? Is it just a good idea or is it a God idea? And when he gives you direction, be bold and go for it. Meet the need. Go for it. Every single one of us has issues we could work on. That's what this series is about, is trying to repair that which is broken. We are going to have a time of responsive worship and a responsive prayer. Um, We are going to try and follow the prayer that Nehemiah had in chapter 1. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a chorus that speaks of the goodness and the greatness of God. And when we sing that, I want you to sing it with all your heart. And then we're going to have someone in the church, and on behalf of our congregation, they're going to thank God for His goodness and His greatness. Pray along with them. Then we're going to have a song of confession of prayer. That might sound awkward. I don't know the last time maybe you've heard that in church. And that one person on behalf of our congregation is going to ask God's forgiveness for any area that we have disappointed and let him down. That is your opportunity to pray along with that person and if God brings something to your heart personally to confess that. And then we're going to sing one final song. Talk about the idea that we have a God that can move mountains. 
He can fix the issues in your life. He can fix the issues in our church. He can get us that building if he wants to. Why? Because he moves mountains. And I want you to sing that with all your heart. And then someone will pray and, and ask God for success for this church. Not just the building, but our ministries and our outlook. That's what we're going to do. At the end of the service, if you have personal issues that you feel are broken in your life, just come to the front. We're going to have some people to pray for you. But right now, this is a corporate time where we can worship and pray together. Let's stand and let's sing. God, you are, you are a great God. Father, you are so big and you are so powerful that you literally spoke everything into existence. Father, you hold together everything, Lord. You hold together life. And somehow, somehow you still looked down and you saw us. And you loved us enough to send your son. Father, your name be praised. Father, we exalt you and we worship you because you are worthy. God, you loved us when, um, when we felt like we were unlovable. Father, you have done so much in our, our hearts and our lives, Lord. You, God, you have blessed this church, Lord. You, you've literally changed the hearts and minds of so many people. Father, we look and we can see that nature itself praises you. You are a great God. So, Father, we take this time to sit back and thank you. And say because of everything that you have done in our lives, Lord, everything you've done in the life of this church, Lord, because of the fact that you are hope, that you are joy, that you are peace, that you are love, because of that, we can say, you are a great God. We praise you, Father. As Nehemiah prayed, I confess the sins that this church has committed against you, Lord. Father, for those, those sins that are um, actions or inactions that disappointed you, disrespected you, or that we disobeyed you, Lord, we humbly come before you knowing that you are a God of forgiveness, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us so that we could confess our sins to you knowing, not questioning, but knowing that you're going to forgive us. Lord, I pray that you will forgive us for not being burdened for this community. Lord, for being at times so inward focused that we forget to see the world dying outside. Lord, I pray that you will forgive us for not honoring you with our finances. Lord, give us wisdom to know what you want to do with what you've given us. Lord, I pray that you'll forgive us for those times when we've served with the wrong motives. Lord, when we've done things or, or said things to bring glory to ourselves, but we've missed the glory that you deserve, that we've not given you praise for our successes, but yet we haven't hesitated to 
to blame you for our failures. Lord, forgive us. Lord, we're so humbled before you. And God, we ask, I ask on behalf of this church, Lord, that you would humble us. Help us to be people that you want us to be, to obey you, to obey your commands, to obey where you want us to be as a church. And Lord, that this community would see this church as a huge light for you because we've decided to take a step to confess our sins and Lord, forgive us and change us from the inside out. We love you, Lord. Amen. Lord God, just as Nehemiah prayed for the church, we pray for the success of Bay Hills, Lord. You remind us in the word, Lord, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves, Lord. So we ask that you constantly remind us to come together as a church, Lord. You also remind us in the word, Lord, that nothing is impossible through Christ who strengthens us, Lord. So we ask that you remind us and constantly push us to know that we can do all things, Lord. We ask today, Lord, that you constantly uh, remind us to pray for the success of our church, Lord, not for our glory, but for your glory, Lord. We ask that you continue to grow our numbers, Lord, so that we can go out and reach others, Lord, so that they can come to know the peace and joy that comes through you, Lord. We ask that you constantly push us, constantly remind us, constantly prick us and poke us to want to do more for you, Lord. And constantly remind us, it's not about us, but it's about you, Lord. We pray that you assist us, Lord, in getting the building that you would have us to have, Lord. The facility that you would have us to have, Lord, so others can come to know you, Lord. Push us, push us hard, Lord, but remind us to constantly and consistently come to you, Lord, and to know that this is all about you, about your glory, Lord. We thank you, we praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.